Welcome to Gathering Gold. This is Cheryl Paul. And I'm Victoria Russell. Cheryl, you posted on Instagram recently about pandemic fatigue. We are going into our third year with COVID in our lives, and you were actually sharing a post that you had shared last year, I think, about pandemic Mm -hmm. fatigue Mm -hmm. and naming some symptoms that people might be feeling right now and might be feeling kind of alone with. Mm. Symptoms like exhaustion, irritability, impatience, apathy, moodiness, lashing out, depression, and brain fog. I think the sheer amount of uncertainty and all of the risk assessment that we're doing and all of the decisions we have to make on a daily basis Mm. is exhausting Mm -hmm. and the strain on relationships is exhausting and the burden on caregivers and parents and mothers in particular is pretty exhausting. Mm -hmm. So your post really deeply resonated with me and it resonated with a lot of other people on Instagram as well. So I think it's worth just sharing that and reiterating that at the start of this episode that if anyone listening is feeling it, you're not alone. Mm-hmm. Today, we decided that we wanted to share some specific ways that COVID might be affecting highly sensitive people. And we won't be able to talk about and identify every way that COVID is affecting people right now because it is way too vast and varied. But we're going to be talking about a few themes that show up frequently in our worlds and in the lives of other highly sensitive people right now. And we're going to ask what's being raised up and highlighted right now. And can we take this opportunity to see ourselves more clearly against this backdrop of the times that we are in right now? Mm -hmm. So the first theme that we wanted to unpack a little bit is responsibility. We are in a time where we have to take responsibility for protecting ourselves and our loved ones and our communities as much as we can. But there's a limit to how much we can really take responsibility for and what is ours to take responsibility for. And Cheryl, it seems that there are a fair amount of highly sensitive people who, due to their highly empathetic nature, might be more likely to have an inflated sense of responsibility. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. It is part of the highly, highly sensitive person, there seems to be an ingrained wiring to a certain sector of highly sensitive people that take on um, more than their fair share of responsibility, that they are overly responsible to the point that it doesn't benefit them or anybody else. And it's this core belief that a lot of highly, highly sensitive people have that says, it's my job to keep everyone safe. 
It's my job to keep everyone safe. And when we track this back biologically, historically, culturally to earlier times in our lives as a, as a human race, as a species, and we imagine ourselves living outdoors in much more treacherous, physically treacherous times than many of us are living in right now. And that the threat of danger, of physical danger of survival was imminent really at any moment. And it was our job. It was the highly, highly sensitive person's job to stand as sentry, as protector at the perimeter of the community. And I always just have this visual, this image of literally the highly sensitive person being tasked, right? This responsibility to stand at the perimeter and scan the horizon and look for signs of danger. And if that person failed, the fate of the entire community fell on that person's shoulders. So my guess is, you know, if we can track back and trace back into sort of the genetic origins of, of this tendency to still be scanning the horizon, looking for every sign of possible danger, trying to weigh every possibility of, if I do this, will it protect this person? But if I do this, will it protect this person? That we can also have some compassion for us, ourselves, that it doesn't just come from nowhere, that at least on one level, and we will unpack some other layers of, it's my job to keep everyone safe, that at least on one level, there is... I think a biological genetic origin to this um, this deeply embedded belief that can cause a lot of pain for people. In November, at the end of the month, right before Thanksgiving, my boyfriend Martin was sick, and I somehow in a very uncharacteristic spell of like non-anxiousness was like, it's probably just a cold. It's probably not COVID. We're both vaccinated. We're extremely careful. All you do is go to work with five people. Things aren't as bad. Mm. But lo and behold, it was COVID. Mm. And uh, we got the positive test result the night before Thanksgiving. And we had been at a Friendsgiving with vaccinated friends a couple of days prior. And it's like the only thing I've said yes to, the only thing we've done (laughs) inside Mm. with people uh, like that. And, you know, it was like the day after the party that Martin said he had a scratchy throat. So I had to text all of my friends and say the night before Thanksgiving and say, Martin has COVID and he was probably contagious at the party and tell all of them that and I felt crushing guilt Mm. just absolutely sick I remember I texted you Cheryl and I was like Mm -hmm. I think I'm gonna vomit Mm. (laughs) like I was so I felt so guilty that I wasn't even worried about myself until Mm -hmm. later because I was so upset that I had to text my friends that I love who had babies there. The only people who weren't vaccinated were little babies. Yes. And say, 
we exposed you. Although the we also like, again, I, w- I didn't even have COVID at that point. So mm-hmm. <laughs> like it wasn't even me, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I still felt responsible. And then, then I felt really upset at myself. Like I didn't protect myself enough. I should have done more to protect myself from mm-hmm. him. And I did, mm-hmm. I did get COVID and it was very mild, mm-hmm. luckily. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so my sense of responsibility and fault and blame and guilt and shame, because at that point, you know, it's really spread a lot more now, especially where I am. Mm-hmm. It's much, it's very common now to hear about people getting it, but this was actually kind of right before that or like shortly before that. Um, mm. And I felt ashamed that I got it. Yes. Um, that I had done something wrong, you know, and I yes. was responsible for it all. Yes. Yes. So let's unpack some of that. First off, how did your friends react when you told them? They were gracious. They they, mm-hmm. they did not say, I hate you and I'm never mm-hmm. speaking to you right. again. Right. Which I think is an important piece. Yes. Right? That yes. we are allowed to mess up. And I don't even know if I would call it messing up because you did nothing intentionally. Yeah. Right? We are allowed to inadvertently possibly cause harm. Did any of those friends or their babies end up getting COVID? No. No one who was there got COVID. Everybody was vaccinated. And and Martin was kind of shy that night. I think that helped. He wasn't wasn't kissing (laughs) the babies (laughs) or talking a lot. There's that piece too for the anxious brain and the guilt-ridden brain and the overly responsible brain that thinks, oh my gosh, I've done this horrible thing. Everyone's going to hate me or I've done this horrible thing. Everyone's going to get sick mm-hmm. and none of that actually happened, right? So just in terms of working with that part of the of the self that feels like I can't handle it, I'm going to vomit to be referencing the times when, oh, my worst fear happened and everyone was okay and all of my friendships are okay and nobody hates me, mm-hmm. right? And, and then the other interesting piece, which I asked you a few days ago when we were talking about this episode and I asked you something like, are you, were you so mad at Martin like for bringing it to you? and you said I had moments of going into blame towards him Mm -hmm. but I mostly was internalizing it to Mm -hmm. myself right blaming yourself feeling responsible feeling responsible for the friends at the party like somehow that was that was all your fault yeah right yeah right and so then we zoom out to the place of what does that overly inflated sense of responsibility, guilt, worry, protect against? Because I think that we are wired in some way as humans to either blame others or blame ourselves. Yeah. Neither of which get us very far in life, both of which are the opposite of true responsibility, of personal responsibility in a healthy way. But both of those states keep us in some kind of illusion of 
control. If it's all my fault, I can fix it. If it's all your fault, I can be mad at you and be stuck in that angry place. Right. And it's a similar, it's a similar conversation around, around worry, which is more where, where I go to. Um, and so if we hold these, these protective mechanisms of overly responsible, guilty, worry, and we go underneath and we say, okay, if I'm not going to blame anybody else and I'm not going to blame myself and maybe I'm going to let go of that false illusion of control that worry gives me, then what, what am I left with? Mm-hmm. Right? That letting go of blame, self or other, whoever we're blaming, means letting go of the illusion of control and then we're in that free fall place which can be terrifying but can also be liberating if we have some practices that can catch us in the free fall right because then we are liberated from that agonizing place of I have to be perfect. I have to make all the right decisions. It's so highlighted right now with COVID and it has been for all of this time for these two years. I have to be perfect in my decision-making process and there's no such thing. So that's also part of the exhaustion. Yes. Right. Is trying to anticipate 10 moves ahead when We don't know. We don't know what's 10 moves ahead. The virus is changing every day. The information changes all the time. We don't know so much. We know what we know. We do what we can do. We show up how we can show up. And then it's this emblematic, it's this microcosm of of life. And here's one of these pieces that, that gets to be raised up and one of these opportunities that is highlighted against the backdrop of this time that we're in, of if responsibility over responsibility and blame is a place where you go and perfection is a place where you go and guilt is a place where you go, we you will see it in high relief right now. And it can be an opportunity to ask, what happens when I even for a moment, let myself off the hook, shift into a place of maybe it's nobody's fault. Maybe it's just life happening. And what am I left with? What does that simmer down to at the bottom of the pot? It's one of the biggest themes that shows up in relationship anxiety. I want the guarantee that I'm with the one right perfect person. Right. I want to know that I'm making the one right perfect choice. But then what's the next question? Why? Hmm. Why? Why does it need to be the one right perfect choice? What are you looking to avoid? Right? And it's like, well, the thing we're all looking to avoid, pain, loss, making a mistake, which would mean pain and loss. Right? So... When we go to the bottom of the pot, what we're left with is the places where we are powerless, our vulnerability, how deeply we love life and the people in our lives, 
and how deeply we want to protect them and the awareness that there's only so much we can do to protect people that we love and to protect ourselves. And so for me, it always comes back to what are the practices that help catch you in the free fall of if it's nobody's fault, if it's just life happening, if I can't control bad things from happening by being perfect, if I can't see five steps or 10 steps or 10 years ahead in the case with relationship anxiety and a marriage, if I don't have that crystal ball, which nobody has, if I only have the information I have right now, then I'm left with the immense vulnerability of being a human in relationship to other humans that have the capacity to hurt us and we have the capacity to hurt them. Yes. Intentionally or usually unintentionally in the case of this population of humans who are so highly conscientious and would never harm a fly. So if there's hurt and there's going to be hurt in relationships, it's unintentional. But here we are in this highlighted, like floodlight time of COVID where that fear and then, and and that top layer belief, it's my job to keep everybody safe is right in front of our faces every single day. And then highlighted during times of like holidays when, when you're around possibly more people and you're around your family. You said something earlier, Cheryl, about how in earlier times in human history, you kind of envision the highly sensitive person as the protector who's looking out, ready to catch any sign of danger. But I was thinking about earlier times in people's personal history, people who have that blueprint of feeling responsible from the time that they were a child for their parent or for their siblings or for their family, that this might call up a lot of that. Um, And I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Yes. It's so important. It's such an important piece of feeling overly responsible, too responsible. And many people can track that back to their childhood and growing up with parents who either explicitly said, it's all your fault and doled out a lot of blame. Um, or it was just in the ether. It was in the invisible realm. There was this sense of, um, if something's wrong, because I'm not seeing other people take responsibility, a child will naturally default to, it must be my fault. So that false illusion of control shows up very, very early for children. It's, it's one way that it's a survival mechanism and it's a brilliant, brilliant survival technique for childhood. It's just that it doesn't continue to serve us as adults. But as a child, to hang on to this belief, if I just do everything better, right, perfectly, I will somehow lessen the pain that I'm seeing in my family. I will take away some pain, or at least I won't cause more pain. So um, it starts out with as, as, as this protective mechanism, false control. I can hang on to that. I can try to do better, or I can take on the pain and be the fixer and be the pleaser. 
And what a, what a child doesn't have words for is that it then translates into that belief. It is my job. It's my job to keep everybody safe. It's my job to keep the family together. Um, the child who is the most sensitive child in the family is typically the one who takes on that role and who on some level knows that they are in some ways, even as a young child, more emotionally mature, even older in some way right, than their parents, not biologically, but in a different way that we, that we can measure age or maturity, that they are older. And so that young, highly, highly sensitive child will carry that into adulthood. And again, there's this, there's this immense healing and growth opportunity to see that part of you coming out in spades right now against this backdrop, right? Where the stakes have been so heightened and, and look at it from a zoomed out place. There's your young self feeling overly responsible for everybody. And here's your adult self looking at that five or seven or 11 year old saying, oh, sweetheart, that is not your job. That is not your job to keep everybody safe. It is your job to do your part, yes, however you can. And the rest, most of it, is out of your hands. So there's this reparenting opportunity, right, to hold that young self, to soothe that young self, to remind that young self of the truth over and over and over again. Just like if you had a seven-year-old in your life and they were looking up at you saying, it's all my fault that my classmates got sick. And you would say, no, no, it's not. So for most people listening, if you carry that sense of overly responsible, it is both likely in your genetic code and also in your, in your family culture. And that's nobody's fault. That's just the way families have been until very recently when we have more consciousness, we have more information about helping children not take on that role of, you know, parentified child, little adult, pleaser, fixer, right? We can, we can tend to those places if we see the tendency show up in our children. And the irony that you and I have talked about in the past is that sometimes an overinflated sense of responsibility for other people, for things that you're not actually truly responsible for or in control of, can sometimes mean that you're not taking responsibility for some things that you should be. Mm-hmm. It, it can like you're not actually in right relationship with responsibility. Yes. Right. Can you talk about that a little bit more as well? Yes. It's such an important point to bring up because it also points to the defense mechanism aspect that when we are perseverating on being overly responsible. It has the look and feel of being like a super good human, right? Like I'm going to be that perfect human that takes care of everybody else. But in fact, there's some little twist in there of you're you're over-focusing on that piece and possibly avoiding some other place inside of um, even if it's 
taking responsibility for your own powerlessness, your own hurt child, your own grief around what we are still in, your own exhaustion. So anytime we're stuck in that spin cycle of a headspace, and if you could see me right now, you'd see my my two fingers like going around and around up at my head, like spin, spin, spin. Anytime we're up there, whether it's perseverating on, on being overly responsible and doing the right thing or in that worry place, it is a way that we are avoiding dropping into our bodies, being with ourselves, showing up. It's a form of self-abandonment, really. Because we are falling prey to some false belief that we are that we have that much control and power. That if we make all the right decisions, that we can prevent bad things from happening. That if we worry enough, we can prevent bad things from happening. So we're, we are listening to a whole bunch of false beliefs, staying stuck in the headspace, and meanwhile, abandoning, abdicating responsibility for our our emotional lives, which we can call inner child or however we want to frame that, but our emotional, our, our somatic, our lived, our moment by moment experience, what's happening right now, right? we are ignoring when we're stuck in that headspace. And I think we do end up going so quickly to blame and anger towards ourselves, but also towards other people when we're in that headspace. Yes. 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 And again, to simmer down to what's underneath all of that is an act of tremendous courage because then we're left with the most vulnerable places. And when we're stuck up in our heads spinning, we still think we have some control. It is safer because it's familiar, because it's the head. But to drop that is to drop the defense to drop the false control, to drop the armor, and to come into that almost breathless place of what it is to be a human being on this planet where death and loss and hurt exist. And how do we meet that most, most tender, unarmored place with mm -hmm. kindness, with spiritual practice, with mantra, with imagery. How do we meet what's actually living in our bodies moment by moment? And it is a practice and it's very challenging for highly, highly sensitive people who have spent their whole lives in their heads to, to escape from the enormity of vulnerability that lives in the bodies. And almost every single person who finds their way to my work will say some version of, I'm always living in my head. Mm -hmm. right. So I don't say this lightly, like, well, just drop down into your body. It is, <laughs> it's not like that. But when we can, even just for a moment, it's a moment of great healing. The word that comes to my mind 
is forgiveness. Yeah, so good. So I have a poem that speaks to these themes that we're talking about a little bit. It's from a couple of years ago, and it's it was inspired by a hike that Martin and I did, and the hike scared me because it was very scrambly and rocky and mm. and sometimes in those moments when I do something like that I start to blame to go into like blame and fear and like why would I do something like this why would I put myself in a dangerous situation mm-hmm. uh, and so this is called Breakneck Ridge The jagged rocks are slick with mud I wedge my feet into corners curl my fingers around jutting holds. Nearby, a hiker slips, and my breath catches like fish in a net. Fighting to straighten the world, I watch the Hudson tilt below me, once again finding myself stuck on a knife's edge, angry and scared, repeating like a prayer, there is no other life, until resistance loosens. I look at my love, standing above me plant my muddied hands forgive the deadly world and my cowardly heart forgive the deadly world and my cowardly heart but your brave heart too (laughs) it's so it's so beautiful victoria your poem and i could feel i felt vertigo actually listening to it (laughs) i watched the hudson tilt below me Well, that's that's how it feels during COVID so often is like you're yes. stuck on a ledge. Like, do I go up or do I go down? I'm scared Ugh. of either option. And when you're on a hike like that, it's like, well, you you got to do something. You're on this hike and you have to yes. you have to move. You can't live on this ledge forever. Yes. And so that's where some semblance, whether it's just acceptance or some tenderness towards myself and others. Um, can lift it a little bit and then I can get a little more strength to just make the decision and make take the next step yes yes for so many women that I talk to um the theme that is that has been most present since COVID started has been health anxiety, and it's health anxiety that they already have, but it's been magnified and amplified during COVID. Um, and that's certainly the place where I have gotten most triggered over these past two years, that there have been a few times where my health anxiety has kicked in and it has thrown me to the ground. Recording this is very timely. We just had a COVID scare. And my first response was fear and dread when Asher said my throat hurts. Sunday night, 
his throat was still hurting and they were, you know, we had to decide if they were going to school the next day. It was pretty clear that they would not be. Um, but I started to fall asleep and I was having a hard, I was going in and out of sleep. And in that half conscious state, a wave of terror entered my body. And when terror enters like that, for me, it enters as ice. It's like ice, just like the, the, the coldest cold just turned my blood to ice. I am ice. I am shivering. I can't stop shivering. I'm so cold. I am in terror and it's not, it's not even a rational terror because there's still some part of my brain watching this saying, even if he has COVID, he'll be fine. Even if he gives it to me, I'll be okay. I'm watching it. I'm actually thinking about our episode. <laughs> um, so I'm, I, I have some witness, but I am also, every time I start to fall back asleep, there's no witness. I'm in the, I'm in the subconscious, unconscious, and it's pure shivering. I'm shivering. And the first thing I draw upon when I'm in that place, because people often ask me, clients often ask me, what do I do in the moment, right? Because so much of my work is about the deep dive. What do you, how do you do all around the moment? How do you attend? How do you grow that relationship with your inner parent, with your young self, with that, with your body? And then there are on the spot tools of what do you do in the moment when terror takes over? in the form of health anxiety for me, but it can be any variety of themes, of course. It's the same experience in the body. And the first place I reached for was, I saw my friend Carrie's face in front of me, smiling, saying, you're okay, honey. You're okay. Just smiling, I know it, you're okay. And then I imagined my friend Jessica coming, standing guard, protecting me as she has done since we were 11 years old and we have done for each other. And then I imagine my friend Lisa, who is now a rabbi and I've known since I was 16 and is a sister coming and in her tali and in her, in her rabbi self, chanting, singing, protecting, loving. And then I imagine my three imaginal women who I call upon when I'm meditating um, coming and all, all those women arriving around the bed, standing guard, protecting me, loving me. And then I imagined finally two of my most influential female therapists, both now in their 60s, both in that elder, wise woman crone stage coming. So eight women coming with love and protection, coming with comfort. And I could feel myself coming down a few notches, taking in the imaginal mothering, knowing that when we're in that state at some level, the only thing we're wanting is is our mother to say, I'm here, I've got you, I'm holding you, it's okay, 
You're not alone. I'm with you. It's to be held. It's that longing to be held and comforted. And so drawing in, growing those relationships, and that's the work you do outside of the moment that I have those rich relationships with all of those women in real life, but also imaginally that I've called on them many times that they are at the ready in my psyche to come as I am for them. And then feeling a little bit more resourced, still cold. You know, I had the sense this is not present day. Some part of me knows that it's all okay. Even if we all have COVID, it's all okay. This is not present day. And I think so much of health anxiety is not present day. Well, anxiety in general, it's not present day. It's either past or future based. So it's not present day. What is this linking back to? And what came from my body was an image of myself as a newborn and the story that my mother has told me that I was like so many babies were always taken away at birth, put in the nursery alone, probably cold. I, I, my sense is that I was cold alone and that I was dissociated because that's what a baby would do in a trauma moment like that because a baby's supposed to be with their mother. And we know this now. We've known it for thousands of years, but we forgot for a while and and now we know it again. But that deep sense of I'm going to die, that fear of I'm going to die, that's the level of terror that was in my body. Again, it doesn't make sense present day. It's not present day. It's such an important piece to remember in a moment where fear or worry or shame takes over is that it's not present day. It's old. It's historic. And so I brought that little baby into bed with me, just like I slept with my sons all those years. I brought little me, little me, little baby me into bed, holding her, warming her, telling her you're safe. You're safe. I've got you. I'm here. And so I was being held by the mothers and then I'm holding my little self. And my body calmed and I warmed up and I went to sleep. And the piece I want to say about this time and these different themes that we're exploring, responsibility, health, anxiety, is that it's not that we're not going to get caught and triggered. We are for the rest of our lives, right? That's not what consciousness or, or evolution or spiritual psychological health, it's not about never getting triggered. It's about learning to come back 
to center, to ground, to home a little bit faster so that we're not strung out, out on the clothesline all by ourselves, at the cliff's edge all by ourselves for hours or days or weeks that you know, this was maybe 20 minutes and I was able to bring myself back from sheer terror, sheer old trauma terror into this moment. And I've had many of those opportunities where there's been a real COVID scare and it always hits me in the middle of the night, right? It's always at nighttime. Some people are very triggered in the morning hours. And I hear a lot about morning anxiety and I've written about it, um, that that's the most vulnerable time. And for others, it's, it's night, it's past dark, often in the wee hours, right? Somewhere between 12 and five. So I've had several of those triggers, maybe three or four in the past two years. I would say more frequently in those early months, March to, you know, April, May, June, that first part of COVID where we just didn't know anything. And then it tapered off. And then there's been a couple of COVID scares where there's been exposure and it's come back in. But I haven't had one like this in a really long time where it it took over. It was unconscious. It was not middle of the day. Like I can talk myself through it. it was a body layer that again, I was able to meet, and so I would like to think, and I do believe, and I think the research shows that this is how we heal also. This is how we heal those those old, painful, scary places. It's when they come back up and we're able to meet them and accompany ourselves in a way that we couldn't when we were all alone back then that we can accompany ourselves now. And that's what brings the healing. That's what brings the homeostasis and the regulation. When the pandemic started, I was already in a really difficult season of health anxiety, like Mm -hmm. some of the worst ever. And strangely enough, some of my health anxiety has improved during the pandemic. Mm. Mm. But I know how that terror can just grip you. And I know how being highly sensitive and being so attuned to not just stimulation in our outside environment, but everything that is happening in our bodies. Like, what was that? What was that? (laughs) Is my heart fluttering? Is my throat tight is, you know, um, you can start to feel like a prisoner in your own body when health anxiety Mm. is really bad and it's Mm. awful. It feels so real when this is the hardest thing about anxiety is when do you take it seriously and what's real and what's anxiety provoked. And like I shared with you, every time there's been an exposure, instantly I have a sore throat. Mm -hmm. It's like, and it feels so real. It's like, oh, oh, my throat hurts. Maybe yes. I just wasn't aware of it before. But it's <laughs> yeah. like insta-COVID is yep. what happens to the health anxiety brain, right? Ironically, a few days before 
I got COVID, I was starting to feel that like anxiety shortness of breath that I haven't really had in a long time. Mm-hmm. So then I was like, oh gosh, and now I have COVID. And like, you know, that fear of how will I know if something is truly wrong or if it's just anxiety. Mm. And honestly, Cheryl, like I remember talking about this with you years ago, pre-COVID. How do I know if something's really wrong or if it's just anxiety? And I remember you saying, you'll know. Mm -hmm. And that's still really scary to me, but I think that self-trust piece of just being like, you know what? I trust that I will take care of myself. Yes. It's hard, but I had to just kind of I would hear your voice say that and then I'd say, and now I'm going to watch this Netflix Christmas movie mm-hmm. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, you know, move along. And I had a middle of the night, uh, the most anxious I got. I actually did not get uh, as anxious as I feared when we had COVID. Mm. Um the most anxious I got was also in the middle of the night when I realized I couldn't smell anymore. Mm. And yes. I got out of bed and I went to the kitchen and tried to smell coffee beans and a slice of lemon and I couldn't smell anything. And mm. that was the most anxious I felt. And I started Googling like, when does smell come back? You know? <laughs> and mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. and Another thing that's really helpful to me is grounding myself in what we do know and the information that we do have. And as you mentioned before, I think we're not in the same place with COVID as we were in March of 2020. Yes. Yes, it is still serious and we need to take it seriously and we need to protect people. And... You know, I could remind myself I am vaccinated. I am fortunate in that I don't have an underlying condition. Mm-hmm. I'm not immunocompromised. And it all, all, all signs were showing that I had a mild infection. Mm-hmm. So grounding myself in that, and I know that's not the case for everyone, so I almost – it's hard to talk about that because I know that there are people listening who are immunocompromised or have a dear loved one who is at higher risk. I mean, we all do. Um, so I know that that's not across the board comforting and it's not – there are no guarantees. But I do think it is important and it was helpful to me in the moment to ground myself. And this, I would hear my therapist's voice a lot because this is mm. something we've talked about a lot <laughs> mm. over the past, you know, months mm-hmm. is, okay, let's ground ourselves in the facts of what yes. the situation is right now. Yes. And those facts might be different for different people depending on their situation. But to ground yourself in the facts is part of what we do as a loving inner parent. Yes. It's calling on that cooling, calming prefrontal cortex that sends a very different message of I am okay right now in this moment as opposed to the amygdala lizard brain that is very hot and very 
primal and primitive. So it's such a good anchoring tool to come into what do I know to be true right now in this moment? And that will be different for different people. So for you, it was, I'm young, I'm healthy. I don't have any underlying conditions, health issues. I'm vaccinated. And that it helped you to come back to this moment. I think it's anything that helps us to come back to right now. Yeah. And the, what we know to be true right now. And the overarching one that I think is important to underscore that you just mentioned that we had talked about earlier is that we are still living as if COVID today is the same as COVID March 2020. It, this, it's the same word and it's the same virus, kind of, but the effect seems to be much milder for most people, not for everybody. But our nervous systems, we all have COVID trauma. There's no way that we don't still have COVID trauma and we'll have it for a while. But eventually, I think we're going to get to the place where saying I have COVID is like saying I have a cold. And just even in the past, in the past few months, the stigma of it, right? That shame that you felt when you got COVID, Victoria, right? End of November, when it hadn't flared like it's flared right now. Now it's like we all know multiple people who have had it or who have it right in this very moment, or you have it yourself. So how much has changed just in the past six weeks, which is also part of what's exhausting because like we can't keep up. It's, it's mm-hmm. changing every day. There's so much change happening every single day. But that one is a positive change that the stigma, like when one of my best friends got it over the summer, she was filled with shame. She felt like it, she was wearing a scarlet letter. Yes. Like you couldn't even say, I mean, COVID was still such a, to say I have COVID was like, you're a leper. Yes. It's not that way now. Right. Which is wild to think in just six weeks. There's, I I think, significantly less stigma around it. So that's kind of an aside. Um, I think it feeds into the health anxiety piece because it feeds into that shame piece that comes up for a lot of people with health health anxiety. That health anxiety, you know, like like you've said, Victoria, if I get sick, it means I've done something wrong. I'm bad. It's my fault. Yeah. Right. So I think that's also a cooling, calming place to say it is not a scarlet letter. It is not, you are not a leper. Yeah. Yeah, I think shame has always been, and blame, going back to the beginning of the Mm -hmm. episode, shame and blame have always been really big factors in health anxiety for me. Mm -hmm. And I think that comes from living in a culture where we do kind of treat people as if, if they're sick, it's because they did something wrong. They Mm. just didn't eat the right diet and that's why they're sick. You know, they didn't, they didn't do something or they did do something that caused their suffering and they should be able to fix it Mm. with the magic, you know, solution of Mm -hmm. the moment. And I think again, kind of similar to that responsibility piece, 
the alternative is letting go. And, and again, there's that tightrope of taking responsibility for what we can and letting go of what we can't and, and realizing that stuff happens Mm -hmm. (laughs) and removing some of that, that moral weight and that shame of like, you did something bad. Yes. Yeah. It's, that's such a long process for me all the way from like, you know, being a little girl at the doctor's office where they say, oh, you're so good. You're healthy. You're such Mm. an easy, you're so good. Mm. And being that people pleaser and that good girl who's like, yes, I will be healthy for you. <laughs> I let, yes. This is making things easier for you. And apparently that means I'm good because I'm healthy. Yes. And again, kind of like here's this opportunity to really interrogate that and say, is that really true? Are people mm. bad if they're not healthy? Of course not. Like, mm. of course I don't – of course not. <laughs> right. You can say that for everybody else. Yeah. Right, and learning to bring that to your own self. Of course not. Of course I'm allowed to get sick. Of course I'm allowed to have something that's not perfectly functioning in my body. Everybody does. Our bodies are so incredibly imperfect. And so it's, it's so often we can bring that voice of kindness and compassion to everybody else in your life, right? But bringing it back to you. So in addition to the ways we might be struggling with responsibility, with health anxiety, Cheryl, you've also mentioned that you are seeing quite an uptick in relationship anxiety right now. Relationship anxiety, yes, and also relationship struggles. Hmm. Even if it doesn't show up as relationship anxiety, just struggle amongst couples. Yes. Conflict. (laughs) Conflict. Yeah. Yes, because of COVID. Yeah, I have definitely experienced this myself and Martin and I are not on wildly different pages, but if Mm. you're even just on, you know, (laughs) I'm on page 74 and he's on page 76, that is enough to create a lot of friction at times. Yes. Yes. And that's what I'm seeing. So I'm seeing one partner has health anxiety and and the other doesn't. One partner is on the sensitive, anxious, creative spectrum and the other is more easygoing. One partner is more introverted and the other is more extroverted. So that can translate as one partner's coping mechanism is to isolate and turn inward and hunker down and never leave their house. Mm -hmm. And the others is to go out into the world and regenerate and recharge that way. Um, And so the more highly sensitive partner, even if you are closer than it, than you think, right. Closer than, than you could be, you're not wildly at off at other ends of the spectrum. Um, But the highly sensitive partner is naturally going to want their partner to to do nothing, to mm-hmm. never leave the house, to or only when absolutely necessary, but to not take any 
risks. So this is challenging. And I have several people in my world, both personally and in my client world, who have really struggled these past couple of years um, because of their different COVID boundaries. And the stakes being so high, it's not, it's not a typical challenge of differences. Like, I like to stay home and my partner likes to go out a lot. So, okay, that's maybe a bummer sometimes, but, but we figure it out. But, well, I like to stay home in normal times, but now we're in COVID. And so my partner needing to go out and taking a risk to possibly bring back COVID. And again, I think this is lessening because of where we're at right now, but it doesn't mean it's gone. It is still completely here and with us. And we still have to be taking measures and precautions. So it's stirred up a lot of challenge for couples. And I I just want to name that. I don't have any magic cure for it. Um, I think as always in relationships, it's about leaning into your partner's emotional experience, what's going on underneath the presenting problem being able to practice those skills of empathy and compassion and really hearing and listening to what your partner is struggling with and needing. And somehow through that experience of reaching for each other and holding each other's pain and fear and needs, um, something often does move and resolve at times, but sometimes it doesn't. And then you're just left really frustrated with each other and sometimes really mad at each other. And then that can naturally go into relationship anxiety. I'm with the wrong person. I should be with someone who's more like me. Why doesn't my partner care? I've made a mistake. And then whatever relationship anxiety hook is familiar for you might get called up during this time. And I'm certainly seeing that as well. Mm. So there's that peace around COVID boundaries. And then there's the fact that other relationship patterns will arise during this time. We've been essentially trapped in a house with each other for two years. We don't have the normal oxygen flow of going out into the world, just going to your workplace that we have had. I mean, you have some of that, Victoria, because of the nature of Martin's job. Mm-hmm. But when he's home and you're not going off to work and you're just in this little apartment, it is a pressure cooker. Oh, yeah. Right? right? Oh, and, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not natural. Like we're not meant to be living like this with our loved ones that sometimes don't feel like loved ones because <laughs> it's like, you know, everything is heightened. So again, I'm always looking for the growth and healing opportunities. It's not that new patterns are arising that have never existed before. They are brought into high relief because there's nowhere else to run and our normal distractions have fallen away. And we have found new distractions, of course, because we do that. But it's such that we are face to face. And there's an opportunity to say, hmm, what can we look at here separately and together? 
Do we need to go to couples counseling? I mean, every couples counselor I know right now is booked with a six-month waiting list. Mm-hmm. You know, in addition to every individual therapist booked with a six-month waiting list, which is great that people are working on themselves, right? And hopefully this will all unfold into much greater healing and consciousness, this accelerated healing track that we are on right now. But not to glorify it, it is hard. It is really hard. And some of it, I will also say, is not just about elucidating patterns. Some of it is circumstantial. We are not meant to be stuck in a house together for two years. Yes. Right. That is not healthy for any partnership to be just kind of staring at each other for two years. Like we, we need, we need the out breath. We need the exhale. We need to have experiences separate from each other that we bring back to the relationship. We need to get juiced up and, and stimulated by other people, other humans, <laughs> right? Even the most introverted among us, which I think in the beginning of COVID, this just felt like this great relief and this great excuse to be as introverted as we've always wanted to be. But even for the most introverted among us, we're recognizing we actually do need people. We actually do need to leave our houses. We actually do need to have experiences out in the world. I'm so glad that you are talking about this and sharing this because I think it's really easy, especially when we are super isolated, to go onto Instagram and to just see people who are like, no one I'd rather be quarantined with, like baking, you know, baking cookies with my boo. We're so happy together in this house. And to just think, oh, okay, so um, no one else just had a total meltdown about dirty dishes yes. and yes. and whether or not my partner is going to go to the gym or whatever. Right. So I think it's really helpful just to know that struggles in relationships right now are are happening to other people. Yes, they are. <laughs> yes, they are. I was sharing with you that I feel like I feel like I've lost muscle around certain parts of myself yes. that are really important for me to feel types of confidence and strength mm. because I naturally tend to want to just, like I said in our last episode about winter, I just want to live in a little comfortable nest and mm. not leave. Mm. And that definitely has an impact on my relationship, like how I show up to my relationship and how I behave. And like I've been working remotely for almost two years. So I've just been home a lot. I've been isolated a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And the more that that happens, the more I lose touch with other parts of myself and being out in the world and, and, tapping into those other parts of myself reminds me that I'm an adult and I'm capable and I can regulate and modulate my emotions. And when we are in these little pressure cookers and trying to keep it all together during this pandemic, and 
suffering from pandemic fatigue and all of these things. It's it's really easy to lose touch with different parts of ourselves. For me, it's easy for me to lose lose touch with different parts of myself and then become like the worst version of myself with mm. my partner sometimes. Mm. Mm. Yes. It's important what you're saying in terms of losing muscle when we go out into the world and we were and we are in a work environment, we are asked to step into our adult self. And so when we are asked to be out and around other people, we are we are being socialized, right? We are we are growing, continually growing those places inside where we are being a good member of society. And it is easy to devolve and to be our worst selves at home. Always. That's always the case. It's always when we show more of our true colors. But it's certainly amplified right now. When we have we we're just like literally and metaphorically in our pajamas all day. Right. Not stepping into like the feeling when you've been in your pajamas all day and then you you know you're going to go out that evening and you take a shower and you put on some clothes that you <laughs> like and you feel different. Mm-hmm. Right? You feel different. It accesses and ignites a different part of you. Well, for many people, we've just been in our pajamas for two years. We're also just looking at another person in their pajamas for two years. <laughs> Yes. So, you know, it might not be our most attractive selves showing up for each other. Like, it would make sense that people, couples are struggling because it is that same experience. Like, your partner's in their pajamas all day, and then they take a shower and get dressed up, and you're like, hey, mm-hmm. right? I know. Oh. I, put on, I, I put on jeans the other day. Martin was like, whoa. <laughs> Who's this woman? You know? Right. We're just living in sweats, right? Yeah. It's like, why buy, why wear jeans when you yeah. can wear sweats all so day? Binding and unforgiving. Talk about not so forgiving. Binding. I know. I know. So it's good to name all of this. I think it's good to hold the long view and know that we will be returning. And some people already are and some people have been the whole time. But we will be returning to to something more approximating normal. Um, there is a big picture here that's really important to hold, that some of the struggle between couples is circumstantial and some of it is highlighting old patterns that were always there that could use some attention something that you speak to so well in your work is how a relationship always is going to show you where you're stuck or where you are needing to grow some muscle or to try a different way. And like for me and Martin, um, he really wanted to go on a trip this fall or early winter and I wasn't ready to get on a plane yet. Mm-hmm. And we got COVID anyway, but my, I had to sit and think, okay, so my ideal is we stay home and never leave. 
And his mm-hmm. ideal is we fly to Hawaii or something. So is it possible I can find a middle way? And mm-hmm. so my suggestion was, how about we go to Vermont? We drive there. We stayed in Airbnb. But I'll take a snowboarding lesson, which I mentioned in the last episode about winter, because I know Martin and I know that he wants to do something different and something active and adventurous. And so it wasn't even necessarily all about a different location. It was also about doing something different. Mm. Yes. And so we had a really nice trip. Mm. And it did push me out of my comfort zone, but it also reminded me that that's good for me and important for me too. Yes. And it wasn't too far out, though it was difficult. I had a, I had a moment where I was like, oh no, you know, I was freaking out about whether it was safe, even though mm-hmm. we were literally just leaving quarantine. Mm-hmm. So getting creative and yes. figuring out what our true limit is and how we can honor what's really important to that other person. It might not look exactly like what each of us would choose on our own, but is there something, a third option that we can create together? Yes. Beautiful. Beautiful. And that's the essence of relationships right there, right? Of so many conflicts that arise in relationships is that it's not going to be exactly the way you want and it's not going to be exactly the way your partner wants. And if that's the way you need it, then there's no relationship in the world that's going to work because a healthy relationship includes compromise always and finding that middle ground. And that's, that's that piece of stepping into your partner's shoes and trying to understand as best you can what they're needing and them stepping into your shoes. And how can we find a place that feels good enough? It's not going to be perfect, but it's going to be good enough. And it's going to require each partner to either let go of something or extend themselves in some way outside of a comfort zone. And I would say that COVID for many couples has amplified that core relationship challenge and task, right? Whatever the specifics are, one one cup, one partner wants to go to a concert and the other one is not comfortable with that. And initially, these kinds of conflicts always seem um, impassable, impossible. That was was the word that came into my mind when you described that situation. I was like, yes, it feels impossible. Impossible. Like, how is there a middle ground? But there almost always is. Mm. And that's sort of that magic piece that, okay, so it's not going to be the perfect scenario exactly as you want it but that can only happen if you're single that's the only way to create your life exactly the way you want it is to not have a partner at all yeah So I wanted to end with some simple guideposts um, for how to come back to center, how to keep managing this as we are still in it, still in the pandemic, um, in a different phase of it, but still here. Just some ways to stay more connected to yourself, to that still point, to that 
eye of the storm that we all have. We all have a place of calm that lives inside of us. And I would like to remind all of us that one of the reasons why we do inner work um, is that the more we transform the burden of being a highly sensitive person, which can be experienced as a burden at times for sure, that the more we transform that experience of being a lightning rod that absorbs everything, however it shows up for us, into the gift of serving as a lighthouse, the more calm we can offer to others, the more we can be that that calm shore. And it's okay if you can't do this yet. You, you will. You will as you continue to reflect and turn inward and, and practice your tools and go to therapy if that's, if that's a way for you. Um, and as I was thinking about what I wanted to close with and what I wanted to leave you with, this quote from Thich Nhat Hanh that circulated a lot at the beginning of the pandemic came to mind. And he calls it calm and centered. When the crowded Vietnamese refugee boats met with storms or pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person on the boat remained calm and centered, it was enough. It showed the way for everyone to survive. So this is true during this time, but it's also just true in life um, because we are so fortunate in this country that we have not experienced really anything like this. Um, But there are many countries that struggle in a similar way in something akin to what's going on right now and have always struggled. And so all of that is being raised up, lifted up and highlighted as well, that um, you know, we, we are being humbled right, to a, a form of suffering that humans have experienced always, always since we've been on this planet. Yes, this is a challenging time. Um, but embedded in this challenge, there is always this opportunity to grow that center place, to grow that calm eye, to be that for yourself and maybe even for one other person. So some guideposts for how to come back to self. Um, number one, to validate everything you're feeling. Whatever it is, the depression, the apathy, the brain fog, the exhaustion, the whole list that we read at the beginning, my recent Instagram post, the anger, the grief, to validate it all and know that you're not alone, to breathe into it, making room for it, making friends with it, holding it like you would a baby allowing it to be here and trusting that when we allow it to be here, it does move through. Number two, to connect to others. We need each other more than ever right now. So to remember to pick up the phone, FaceTime, go for a walk with a neighbor or a friend if you can. 
right? The, the human to human connection is essential. Number three, to let yourself have a good cry regularly that we are carrying and absorbing so much and we've been carrying and absorbing so much and sometimes we just need to release, to discharge and there are a few better ways of doing that than crying. Number four, to remember perspective. We have seen very hard times as humans. Um, some people would say, historians might say, we've seen even harder times than this, even more dire times than this. So we tend to lose perspective when we're, when we're in the midst of it, but it can be helpful to zoom out, to look at history, to look at the times, that have been very scary, very challenging, and to trust in our resilience. As I've said in other episodes, I am somebody who lives in a great deal of hope and has a great deal of trust that we are moving in the right direction and that we will figure all of this out, including the, the much bigger problems um, that we are now aware of. There are, there are many, there are, there's no doubt there are many big problems, and I think having the perspective and looking back over history helps us to, to trust that we are moving in the right direction, which is a direction of more justice, more consciousness, more equality, more compassion. Number five, and maybe it's my favorite, is to connect to gratitude. And I think this is a word that is tossed around a lot these days. What does that really mean to connect to gratitude? But when we proactively move toward gratitude, whether we are feeling it or not, it might be the most powerful elixir for the highly sensitive person who is wired to look for what's wrong, dangerous, off kilter, and missing. So gratitude invites us to look at what's present, what's good, what's right, what's safe. It is such a powerful practice. It is like medicine for, the high, for everybody, but especially for the highly sensitive person who is wired in a particular direction to look for what's wrong, that we can train ourselves, we can exercise the muscle of looking for what's right and looking for the opportunity in every moment. So this is how gratitude can show up for me. I was driving into town the other day for a routine doctor's appointment. And it was early and I was tired, not fully, fully awake, not fully in my body. But I pulled out of the driveway and I noticed the way the sun was shining on our house, lighting it up. Our house was literally glowing. And I saw my son's window above the garage, his shades closed because he was still sleeping. And I felt a wash in gratitude for our warm house 
on a very cold winter's morning, for the three humans sleeping in the house, for the color of the paint, for the design of the window, these very simple, simple things, nothing fancy. It was just noticing the light and the color and noticing the feeling of love for these three people. And I continued my drive and I noticed the sun on the mountains. And again, I smiled so grateful for the mountains and the sun and the beauty. And then what happens with gratitude is it's a domino effect. It, it, it triggers more gratitude. Gratitude begets gratitude. And so then I felt grateful for the easy drive from our house to the doctor's office. And growing up in LA where there's almost always horrible traffic, I, I feel a particular gratitude for the lack of traffic here. And as I pulled into the parking lot, I felt gratitude that I have easy access to medical care and how aware I am that many people around the world don't have this. And I could feel guilty for this, right? And there's that fine line between gratitude and guilt, but I choose to channel toward gratitude and also give to others as much as I can and pray that one day we live in a world where everyone has a warm house and people they love and access to medical care and ease of transportation and surrounded by beauty. And so again, it's this cascading effect. And as I sat in the waiting room of the doctor's office, all I felt was goodness. I, I had opened the door with just that one moment of noticing the sun on the house. And then I started to see and feel and connect to more and more things, simple things, simple things. And so like so many other things, it, it is a practice, right? The more you actively connect to gratitude, to what's present here and now, right now, the more you wire your brain in that direction. And again, it is medicine. It is medicine for the anxious brain in all times and I think especially in heightened times. That's beautiful, Cheryl. Mm, thank you. Something that you said to me that was so helpful over the holiday, I was just nervous about going to see my family, even though I had been laying low, I had tested negative. I had just had COVID. I was having irrational anxiety about bringing COVID. <laughs> and you said, I just hope that you can, you know, connect to the fact that you've, you've really done everything you can. And I hope you can enjoy it, mm. like be present and enjoy that time. Yeah. And that really helped to bring me back to like, oh, yeah, <laughs> this is what yes. it's about. Yes, because anxiety is a theft of the present moment, right? It can steal goodness when we let it. And we get all caught up in that headspace. And like we talked about in the beginning, sometimes that's a protection against the vulnerability and the grief and 
the powerlessness, but sometimes it's also protection against the goodness mm-hmm. and the depth of the love, mm-hmm. which when you go deep enough is still the fear of loss. When we really tap into the depth of love, there's the fear of loss right there. But that's when we channel into gratitude and we keep practicing that neural pathway in the brain that goes from I'm in my head, I come into my body, I feel the love or the grief or whatever's living in there. And then right on the heels of that, I feel the fear of loss. And then I practice moving toward gratitude again and again and again and again. Beautiful. Thank you for that reminder. Hmm. Okay, Cheryl, I think we've come to the end. I think we have, Victoria. (laughs) (laughs) If people want to find more of you and your work online, where should they go? I am on Instagram at Wisdom of Anxiety, and my website is conscious-transitions.com. And you can find me over at my other podcast, Perennials, or on Instagram at Perennials Podcast. And if you are enjoying Gathering Gold, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, rate it and leave a review and share it with a friend. Thank you for listening. <laughs>